from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 23rd. Today, court decisions, a lackluster rally, and a new book all rattle the president. Plus, NASCAR's reckoning over racism. The book is an astonishing read in a sense. Almost every page brings some new revelation or some new meeting or something that just paints a president in a very negative light. You may have been hearing about a new book that is out today, a memoir by John Bolton, former national security advisor to the president. It's a book that has all kinds of damaging things to say about what it's like inside the White House. It's the first book from a high-level national security official who was actually inside the White House that just brings so much vivid scenery to the presidency. White House correspondent Josh Dossie has read the book, and he talked about it with Allison Michaels on the Post podcast, Can He Do That? We wanted to share part of that conversation here. So we'll get into the details of the book in a second, but can you just lay out the top line takeaway of Bolton's book? What kind of picture does it paint of President Trump and his administration? It paints a very damning one. It paints a a portrait of a president who is stunningly uninformed in his words, is erratic, is determined to use foreign policy decisions for his own domestic political calculations, who does not understand in Bolton's telling how other foreign dictators work and how foreign leaders work, which in turn makes him easily manipulated by them. One of the most startling revelations in the book is a negative view that Bolton says that Mike Pompeo has of many of the president's decisions and how he makes him. He also depicts uh, former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, former Chief of Staff John Kelly, a number of military officials as frequently exasperated by Trump, stunned at his amorality in Bolton's words. He says that the president thought it would be, quote unquote, cool to invade Venezuela. He says the president wants to execute scumbag journalist. He says that the president asked his advisors if Finland was part of Russia. He says the president asked if the UK was a nuclear power or not. There's a stunning array of statements that he claims the president made that show, in Bolton's words, a just lack of familiarity with how the government should work. He says stunningly uninformed. One major anecdote from the book involves a conversation between Trump and President Xi Jinping of China at a dinner last year. What does the book allege happened in that interaction? He says that in June 2019 in Osaka, they start talking about domestic political issues in the United States. And the president says to him that he really wants to win re-election and that buying more agricultural subsidies would help the president win re-election. He said that it was a stunning moment that the president essentially asked a foreign leader in Bolton's recollection. Now, to be clear, others are disputing this to ask a foreign leader to help him. It was interference at its core, he says. So in part of the conversation between Xi and Trump that we're talking about, Bolton writes that Trump said China should build more camps for Uyghur Muslims who are an ethnic minority in China. Can you just explain why that's so shocking from a U.S. president? It's shocking because United States presidents have typically been a supporter of human rights, have typically stood up for human rights around the world, and have typically said that that sort of behavior would not be okay and would condemn it and would try to block it. Now, the president says in the Wall Street Journal interview he did last night that it's not true that he did not say that, but Bolton depicts it as pretty vividly that he did. 
One of the major takeaways of Bolton's book is that the president's overriding motivation is often self-interest, not the country's interest. He says, for example, that when he's talking about the border wall and why it has to be built so quickly and why immigrants have to be stopped coming in from Mexico, he says, I got elected on this issue and now I'm going to get unelected. He says that the president wanted to get out of Afghanistan in year two instead of year three so he could blame President Obama for the war. Obviously, the G anecdote where he says you need to buy these agricultural products so it could help me get reelected. In numerous conversations, Bolton says the president cited his own domestic political prospects as a reason that he was making a foreign policy decision. John Bolton was a stupid guy, and he was a guy with no heart. And he also had a statement that he would lie whenever he had to. John Bolton's memoir has not gone over well in the White House. Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. The president calling John Bolton wacko, a disgruntled, boring fool, and a dope. There have been a lot of disgruntled former colleagues of Bolton's. Why does the president keep hiring people who are dumb as a rock, overrated, way over their heads, wacko, and incompetent? How does that help Well, sometimes the those rivals prove those labels to be true, and that's particularly... It's big lie Bolton, it's book deal Bolton. He's doing it for the money. The president and, and those around him have been careful not to try to argue, to fact check point by point in the book, but rather presenting the entire work as one of fiction. But the fact that there is this pretty damaging portrayal of the president's coming out now, it seems like it's just building on a lot of events from the last couple of weeks that have been tough for Trump. Certainly, you know, the Bolton revelations are in a way sort of a punctuation point on what I would call a season of crisis and turmoil for the president. Ever since the coronavirus started to ravage the country in, in March and much of the nation's economy ground to a halt, the president has been in a very weakened state politically. And it's in part because of his own doing, because of his management of the pandemic, which has been widely criticized, as well as acts of self-sabotage where, you know, he's made statements that have inflamed tensions in the country. He's been sort of either unwilling or, or incapable of responding adequately to the civil rights movement on the streets of America's cities, including here in Washington, just outside of his White House, with any sort of compassion or sense of unity for the country. And that has all contributed to a really a real weakening of his political standing now in the, in the summer of his re-election year. The election where he's going to be seeking a second term from voters is less than five months away. And then we also saw last week the Supreme Court came out with a pretty major decision that in some ways could be seen as undermining one of Trump's biggest campaign promises. That's right. The Supreme Court ruled that Trump's efforts to dismantle the Obama-era DACA program, this is the program that gives legal protections for children, dreamers, who are brought here to the United States illegally as children, that those efforts violated federal law. That was a huge blow to Trump, especially because Trump has had such a point of pride about the Supreme Court. He nominated two of the conservative justices now on the nine-member bench, and Trump has viewed the court as somehow loyal to him and beholden to him because of that. And yet here they were, the, the majority of the justices saying that Trump's signature immigration policy to take away those protections for dreamers violated the law, that it was not allowed uh, and could not proceed. 
And I think that if there's a connection that we can see between the revelations from the Bolton book and from this Supreme Court decision, it's basically this executive power that Trump wields pretty boldly that is starting to have cracks appear. That's exactly right. You know, for three years now, three and a half years, Trump has expanded the traditional boundaries of executive authority and executive power. And he's done things that go beyond the scope of the law. Article two allows me to do whatever I want. Article two would have allowed me to fire him. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And now all of a sudden, here comes the Supreme Court basically saying, stop, uh, go back, you can't do this. Uh, You don't have the authority to dismantle this program on immigration. In addition, you have the National Security Advisor detailing in his book several accounts of, of Trump doing the very thing that he was impeached over, but with another country, China, seeking help from a foreign leader with his reelection campaign. That is, you know, traditionally seen as a violation of the law. I don't know that Trump is going to be impeached again for that, but it is a real testing uh, of the limits here of, of what Trump's going to be able to do. And, and the president has not reacted well to it and is clearly suffering politically from all of this turmoil because his approval rating, uh, as well as his standing in hypothetical matchups with Joe Biden, has been declining. And then we had this rally over the weekend. Tell me about how that went down. Well, it was billed as the mega rally of all time. You know, there was a 110-day dry spell when the president didn't do any of these rallies. And and finally, he was going to be returning uh, to the campaign trail, to the rally stage in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Saturday night. And we're going to be in Oklahoma, and it's uh, a crowd like, I guess, nobody's seen before. And the campaign was very proud of their claim that more than a million people had signed up to get tickets to go to the rally, had had requested to attend. We have a tremendous... Uh Tremendous uh, request for tickets, like I think probably has never happened politically before. They built a, a second stage outdoors. They were anticipating such a large crowd that the president himself said that there surely would not be an empty seat in the BOK Center, a, a beautiful new sports arena in downtown Tulsa that seats about 19,000 people. And yet Saturday night when the president pulled into the arena and walked out on stage, half of the arena was empty. I mean, he looked up and the entire upper level of the arena all the way around was just a sea of blue seats. Uh, The people didn't show up. And how much are we supposed to read into that, right? Like, I mean, you could sort of look at the situation and say, these are extraordinary circumstances. Obviously, people are, are still concerned about coronavirus. And this is just the first rally in kind of getting back into the swing of things. And then maybe the fact that it wasn't filled up isn't something that is a huge symbol of, of how the campaign is going. Well, in in an ordinary campaign, you would say, you know, oh, well, it it didn't fill up the arena, but there were 6,200 people there. That's the estimate, according to the local fire marshal. That's a pretty good crowd. That's a sign of some enthusiasm. And yet it was such a minuscule representation of what the campaign had been promising a million people. For days, the president was boasting about this rally as his reset moment, as the the period when he was going to prove to all the naysayers in the media that he had strength, that he had momentum behind his campaign, that there was enthusiasm among his supporters. And so by that standard, this was nothing short of a humiliation. It seems like 
there are all these ways in which this moment is proving particularly difficult for President Trump to adapt, right? That he's basically made his whole political career off of the success of his rallies and the fact that his rallies are are just so much more exciting and bigger and more bombastic than anybody else's. But that this is a time where it's proving particularly difficult to do those rallies well. And you have to wonder whether President Trump is going to be able to adapt to the moment. You know, I think that's right. One thing that really stuck out to me watching that rally, and and by the way, his speech lasted for about a, an hour and 40 minutes. So it was a very long speech, is that his message hasn't changed. So much in the world around him has changed from the last time he did a rally. Uh, you know, more than 100,000 Americans are dead from a virus, which is a pandemic. There are millions of Americans who are unemployed, who've lost their jobs in this recession. There's a reckoning in this country over racial injustice and thousands, tens of thousands of people have been marching in streets and cities and towns and communities all from coast to coast. I mean, this is profound change in America. And when the president got up there, he was giving the same speech he could have given back in February or January. And he was, you know, mocking his opponent, Joe Biden, and saying all of his lines. But then he wasn't really addressing the multiple crises that he's responsible for leading the country through. And it just really stuck out watching that speech that he hasn't really figured out what to say about some of these crises in the country. And it also became clear he hasn't really honed in on what his reelection message should be. But if it seems like the Trump campaign strategy right now is essentially to return to the message that originally got President Trump elected, how successful do you think that is shaping up to be? Well, the truth is we're never going to know until November, but every indicator that we have right now shows that it's not a successful strategy. You know, Trump is behind in virtually every public poll, and he's not behind Biden by five points or six points. He's behind by 10 points or 11 points or 12 points. That is an extraordinary deficit that he's going to have to overcome between now and November. Now, the Trump campaign makes the argument that there's the so-called silent majority, as the president puts it, that there are all kinds of voters out there who are not being surveyed by pollsters, who may not even admit to their neighbors, much less a pollster that they plan to vote for Trump. But, you know, by golly, they're going to turn out uh, on November 3rd and cast a ballot for Trump. And he's going to surprise the world again, just like he did in 2016. And that may be true. But all the indicators that we've seen and and that we've been able to report about suggest otherwise, that that the president is at a a real disadvantage here, in part because of the crises and the, the failures of his administration to really contain this coronavirus and revive the economy. Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. White House reporter Josh Dossie was interviewed by Allison Michaels on the post-politics podcast, Can He Do That? It's a great show that you should definitely be listening to. For a link to subscribe, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. So let's start with having you say who you are and what you do. Jerry Brewer, sports columnist, Washington Post. Two weeks ago, 
Bubba Wallace, the only black driver on NASCAR's top circuit, started urging NASCAR to get rid of the Confederate flag. There should be no individual that is uncomfortable showing up to our events to have a good time with their family. No one should feel uncomfortable when, they're, when they come to a NASCAR race. So it starts with Confederate flags. Get them out of here. They have no place for them. It is something that over the past decade in particular, NASCAR has started to push for. But this climate and the fact that it was Bubba Wallace doing it finally gave them the incentive to completely ban the Confederate flag. And I think that was really surprising how quickly that happened, right? That you had NASCAR coming out and saying straight up, look, we're just not going to allow it anymore. And I think people thought that that was a kind of change that we might see years down the road and, and not now. For NASCAR, this is one of the most critical moments in the sport's history. This is a sport that is saying that it is evolving. And now it has this opportunity um, to really come down hard on hate. NASCAR is never going to be black enough for black people, inclusive enough for people who think bigger, but it can no longer be white enough for white people or south enough for southern people. That's an incredibly, it's very easy to come down and do something that upsets everyone. And somehow they have to find a way to thread a needle to get their message across, make it powerful, stand on the right side of history, and not alienate so many people that it ruins the finances of the sport. So then what was the reaction to that announcement that the Confederate flag would be banned at NASCAR? It was as polarizing as you could imagine. NASCAR is essentially saying that they want to reach another audience and that some of their core fandom, you know, a good percentage of their core fandom is all for this. They love the sport. They don't want it to be connected to racism or, or any kind of redneck thought. There, there's one side that that's, okay, you know, we, we want to expose this sport to the masses and make it uh, more inclusive and more appealing, more attractive to everyone. But then you still have a lot of people who, this has always been my sport. Na NASCAR uh, is, the, the South supports NASCAR and we want our Confederate flag and you are essentially saying that our voices and our opinions do not matter. And so there's backlash on the other side. So we saw that in the form of protests, and then we also saw something happen to Bubba Wallace, this lone black driver in NASCAR. At Talladega, which is in Lincoln, Alabama, one of the most important uh, venues for the sport, there were incredible protests outside of Talladega Speedway. Who, who are they to tell us what flag we can fly? I mean, I, what, what lives did it save tearing down some monuments? If you want to save some lives, why didn't they go down and protest at the abortion clinic? They might have actually saved a life. You burn it to the ground and somebody might actually join in. And including someone flying a plane with a Confederate flag and, and also a banner that said defund NASCAR, really tying it to the defund police um, sentiment. It was crazy enough as that day went on, but by the end of the day, NASCAR had announced that we're that we found a noose in the garage stall of Bubba Wallace, someone a team member 
of uh, Bubba Wallace's found the noose. Uh, NASCAR, which is not always transparent, released the news. And here we are. This happens on a Sunday night. And they have a race on Monday. And the big question is, you know, what is NASCAR going to do as a league and how is the public going to respond? And before we get to that, I mean, did did they know who left this noose in the garage? And and also the fact that it was his garage for his car, I I imagine that's not something that is accessible to the public. Uh, A team member, a team member found the noose and it's under investigation now by NASCAR. Uh, local authorities, and they've even called in the FBI. So they have promised that when they find that find out who did it, they will eliminate that person or persons from the sport. That was specifically stated by the NASCAR League office. Um, so they they're very serious about um, making a grand gesture and saying that a racist act like this um, is not tolerable. In our sport. So how did this all culminate at the racetrack at Talladega? On on Sunday, the race was rained out. And then that's when they find the news. You know, it was postponed until Monday. And, you know, as you as you start a race, there's a certain parade and and a lining up. There's there's sort of a tradition to it. All of the NASCAR drivers and crew members essentially pushed Bubba Wallace's number 43 Chevrolet to the front at the start of the race in a show of solidarity that is about as powerful as anything can be done in that sport. When that window net goes up later today, racing is the great equalizer. No one is white, black, brown, or yellow. They are all racers. It really was this incredible moment. Uh, Richard Petty, oh, the, the greatest living legend uh, in the sport uh, and, and the owner of Richard Petty Motorsports, uh, which uh, Bubba Wallace competes for. He gave Bubba Wallace a hug. Uh, some of his stances have been against the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly the protest and, and, the, and the protest during the national anthem. But here he is at 82 years old, hugging his 26-year-old African-American driver with uh, an entire swarm of people around trying to show their solidarity. It was an incredible moment. And I think one moment that is going to be remembered uh, in this dark, barren sports time of, of 2020, you know, for me, you know, outside of uh, some of the displays around the death of Kobe Bryant, I think this is the most memorable moment in sports this year. Wow. So what has Bubba Wallace said publicly about this incident? After the race, during an interview with Fox, he was incredibly emotional about the entire moment and, and what the moment said, uh, which is, you know, he, he expressed the sentiment that NASCAR stands with me and um, we're going to continue this. You know, our sport is changing, he said, as a matter of fact. The sport is changing. Um, the deal that happened yesterday, sorry I'm not wearing my mask, but I wanted to show whoever it was that you're not going to take away my smile. 
So here's my question. You know, I, I do think that this was a very visually powerful moment um, and a really important gesture of solidarity. But do you feel like this is actually a sign of, of real change or evolution within NASCAR? Because it's still a sport that is so overwhelmingly white. I wonder if this is just like a kind of temporary moment of wokeness that they get to enjoy and then go back to the way things usually are, where it's where it's a sport that is overwhelmingly white with an audience that's overwhelmingly white and that that's not really going to change. Symbols matter. Action matters more. This was a very powerful symbol in the face of a symbol of hate. And those drivers you know, have come out and they said, this is not the NASCAR that we want to be. We're going to try to show you what we want to be in this moment before the race. When you do that, that's a great moment, but that doesn't create widespread change. But when you do that, uh, you have tied yourself in intention to wanting to be better. And I think that the, the mission for NASCAR now is you got to hold yourself accountable to your words and hold yourself accountable to this action. They are not going to uh, clean their image in a day, in a moment. Um, it is going to take a lot more. Uh, they're going to have to be incredibly vigilant in fighting against a sentiment of a fan base that puts a lot of money in their pockets. Ultimately, you know, one of the most troubling things about this story is there is an overwhelming likelihood that this was an inside job because of restrictions and because of uh, the pandemic. Not a lot of people are allowed to access the racetrack infields. Not a lot of people have access to the garage area, period, but especially right now. So there is this problem that they're going to have to remove and then they're going to have to show that they they really want to stick with it and really want to change. And you can't have a powerful moment like that and then go back to business as usual. So the next steps are just as important as the initial step for NASCAR. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We want to give a shout out to listeners who have recently left reviews for Post Reports on Apple Podcasts. Listeners like Georgie Liu, F. Douglas, Ryan C., and Nikki Tepas. Your submissions help other folks find out about the important journalism that's happening at The Post and on our podcast. So thank you. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 